You wake up, eat breakfast, have a cup of coffee, brush your teeth. You drive your kids to school, head to work, eat your lunch at your desk, head home, check your kids' homework, eat dinner, watch an episode of something, take a shower, brush your teeth, go to bed, rinse, repeat. Our lives are often profoundly routine. If it weren't for the slow changes of the seasons, the punctuations of occasional holidays, we might lose our place in time. We make decisions every day, but very few of them are momentous enough to truly change the course of our lives, much less history. And yet it can feel like we're doing the same thing over and over again. What small adjustments could we make to change everything? The film we're watching today interrogates this question to great effect. It's a weird bouillabaisse of movie ideas, swapping xenomorphs for Germans on the beach of Normandy and applying a Groundhog Day time travel mechanic to D-Day. But that question is so compelling, and the execution in this movie is so good that it somehow works. Tom Cruise, our hero in the film and Adam's hero in real life, is a major in the U.S. Army of the future. He's their PR man selling humanity on a war that doesn't seem to be a matter of choice. Aliens have invaded Europe and are an existential threat to the species. Tom Cruise is a coward, and when faced with the prospect of heading to the front lines to make PR film, he tries to escape and is busted down to private for his trouble. Now he'll have to don the exosuit of the future military and head into the wood chipper. He dies very early in the film, but is soaked in the blood of a particular alien in his death, and this gives him the power of resurrection. With this power, his character, who was previously so bad at fighting, is suddenly the only person capable of finding a way to defeat the aliens by living the day over and over again, resetting whenever he dies, and making small adjustments each time in order to figure out how to brute force the chess match that humanity is playing with these aliens. We should probably have put this film on the main list. It's a war film. It's not a polemic on the horrors of war, or precisely a celebration of it, but war is the setting and the subject of the film. Because it's in the future, the meaning of this war is a little trickier to tease out, but I think we come up with some compelling film papers in this episode, and you're really going to enjoy it. Battle is the Great Redeemer. It is the fiery crucible in which true heroes are forged. The one place where all men truly share the same rank, regardless of what kind of parasitic scum they were going in. Today on Friendly Fire, The Edge of Tomorrow, or Live, Die, Repeat. I'm... Really not sure which is the title and which is the tagline at this point. Whatever, just listen to the episode. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast whose hosts have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned, and every morning we wake up without a scratch on us, not a dent in the fender. We are immortals. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Sounds like uh, the way Vigo the Carpathian went out. (laughs) All those ways, right? (laughs) That's a a quote from uh, my favorite movie, Groundhog Day. Your favorite movie? Is it really? No, no. I could okay. see that being your favorite movie. Yeah. I really like it. I like this movie too. Just it's like the same movie. Yeah, basically the same movie as Groundhog Day. 
It's it's the same movie if the like goal of uh, Groundhog Day was not personal growth, but just to kill a giant alien. The thing is, you could see Chris Elliott in this movie as a member <laughs> as a member of uh, of Squad J or whatever. What are they called? Oh, yeah. J Squad. Stephen Tobolowski could be in there too. For sure. That would have made J Squad really interesting if like a, a old high school chum of his had been in there. Uh, this is a, a pork chop movie. Uh, uh, am I correct? We are. We watched this and are recording this as part of our bonus feed. It's true. For yeah. our supporters. I think that uh, it felt like it could just as easily have been a a mainline episode. It is such. There are so many war movie parts of it. I I actually uh, felt the same way. This is a war movie. Have we made a grave error burning one of our precious war films on our stupid pork chop feed? No, I, I, I think that the pork chop feed is is where uh, movies that appear to be edge cases like this belong. Yeah. And sometimes we're going to get a, a pleasant surprise where... We're going to get things that are on one side or the other of the line. Yeah, this is a science fiction film, but, but boy, there's a lot of war in it. Is this the uh, first time you've seen it, John? No, I saw it in the theaters. And I remember... Yeah. Uh, both enjoying it and also being frustrated by it. Um, you know, frustrated by all science fiction movies that don't perfectly explain uh, things like time loops and and space-time continua. And there's a lot of stuff toward the end of the movie where you just feel like the aliens could win this battle anytime they wanted. And for whatever reason, they're not. And that they didn't spend the extra like $11 on script writing to, to close all those loopholes. I imagine you were as frustrated as Paul Verhoeven was watching this film. Where are the boobs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're going to have co-ed, uh, co-ed like troops, yeah. don't you get yeah. a shower scene? Not yeah, a there's single no, one. No boobs in J-Squad. No, no one's dumping them out in the <laughs> barracks over there. Emily Blunt is not doing nude yoga in the firing range. Yeah. But the movie owes a ton to Starship Troopers. It's like, a, it's like a Starship Troopers without any cartoon. A subtext-less Starship Troopers. No boobs, no subtext. Repeat. Right. That, that, that was the tagline <laughs> for Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> it's also got like heavy-duty D-Day vibes, like very self-consciously. Yeah, before its locations, right? Right. Almost just, uh, just to give us something to get our fingernails onto to like place it in a in a reality of some kind and the reality is of war movies right we've got the the hard-bitten drill sergeant we've got the other hard-bitten drill sergeant we the only reason he factors into it is we see him 50 times kick, yeah he keeps kicking tom kick cruise in the in this in the suitcase we see j squad which is a misfit group ragtag like nobody loves them uh it's not we've progressed in movies beyond just there being a Jew and Italian and and uh, <laughs> you know and and another guy. Yeah, now there's a girl. <laughs> now there's a girl. A <laughs> That's right. A An fat Australian guy. <laughs> fat guy. Right. It's a, a new a new uh, level of diversity. Yeah. I love the tanky guy in the squad. We need more tanks. Yeah, guy. Yeah. He's he's almost got a a road warrior helmet you feel like some of their gear is, yeah. is just homemade yeah there should have been one guy that was the flamethrower suit yeah flamethrower suit anybody order fried sauerkraut 
Like the the tank guy is definitely the guy with the with the machine gun that's really heavy and needs like a a bipod to to be set up under it to shoot. Well, he's he's cut some weight because he's gotten rid of all of his clothes. Right, like he's, that's he's right. A, he's leaned it out as much as he can. That's right. He's yeah. he's uh, he's going to war nude, yeah, except for his mech suit. He's got robot chaps. But also, also are the you know the in the world, in a world where the aliens have invaded in 2020, which I might add is one year from now. So you guys better Uh-oh. convert your money to Krugerands. But um, our hero, right, the, or the hero of the world of the film is a uh, is Lady Soldier Emily Blunt, the yeah. Angel of Verdun. And so that's that sort of sets the scene. The universe we're inhabiting is uh, maybe alternate universe Earth, where by 2020, the 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 great the world's greatest warrior would be a hundred pound blonde lady in a mech suit with a giant sword made out of a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, that's propeller. so killer! That sword. Her excellence is made possible by her own cheat code. You that's know, right. by having had the same experience that Tom Cruise's character had. Like it, it's not so much that she was a naturally great warrior was it's that it's that she went through the same experience and lived that her same day at Verdun over and over again Verdun <laughs> <laughs> Quel dommage <laughs> um, some people call it Arrakis Adam yeah. calls it Verdun <laughs> uh, here's so here's my first beef right so she's She's lived in this world where every time she dies, she gets uh, reincarnated at the beginning of the same day. She's done that however many thousands of times. We're never, it's never 100% clear. But now it's stopped. Why would she ever go into battle again? She's the hero of Verdun. She could have gone to her commanders and said, look, I'm done with the fighting. Use me as a promotional tool or whatever. Yeah, send me on a USO tour. Yeah, the first time we see her, she goes as part of this landing and is killed in the first minute and a half after she lands on the beach. And if it weren't for Tom Cruise, that would have been the end of her. And I just feel like after all her war experience, she would have decided not to take part in the next fight. And I think she could have gotten away with that. So what the hell is she even doing there? Yeah, she definitely seems to be a soldier who has kind of like transcended the chain of command in in a way and yeah, right. could, could kind of pick her assignment. But I mean, they also make the case that like she's, she's had so many times to practice battle that she's just like incredibly competent at predicting what, what these things are going to do. Except the first time we see her, she's killed. Right. She, yeah. I mean, in the scene where Tom Cruise develops his magic powers, she's already dead by that point. Right. The, the continuity issues are ones where like her science buddy who developed the, who developed the little machine that ends up being the, the definitive machine in the world. He also would have been reset every day in her timeline. So the only time that he would have had to develop all this memory of what had happened would have been in the time between when her last reset happened, which was at Verdun, or whenever it was that she, 
or Verdun, whenever it was that she got this blood transfusion, and now. So she would have had to have filled him in on all of that, and that's where he has all this knowledge, but but we're we're never that's never clearly elucidated and maybe i mean it's implied that the whole time that she was resetting he had continuous memory because he's talking about all the science he did like every time he resets they only have 24 hours right but was he like independently onto this as a thing and that's why they had an alliance like um, she yeah. she found him and he was able to kind of like give her a framework for thinking about what was going on because he'd been working on it already but but how but, uh, but within the world of the movie only she and Tom Cruise have this experience of the alpha's blood giving them the power to reset time right so how would he have even known about that these are the things that frustrated me in the theaters that frustrated <laughs> me less on this viewing yeah I, th- I definitely felt like i enjoyed this movie more this time around mm-hmm. i really love what a bozo tom cruise's character is at the beginning like like i mean it's a it's a movie about him kind of overcoming what a cowardly piece of shit he is like it it is uh it is not your typical tom cruise role that he he opens the movie up being an utterly cowardly shitty dude he's, it's like the character he plays in magnolia He's always yeah. the best and the brightest whenever we see him. And to see him unable to wiggle out of a circumstance where he's not that is really interesting. He does a good job on the battlefield, too, at the beginning, just looking like a hapless twat. I think <laughs> to describe Tom Cruise at this point in his career is to also describe the insane Tom Cruise energy that he brings to films like this. And... He is a dope for the first 20 minutes, but it's that third jump where his character is is given the insane Tom Cruise energy that carries forward throughout the film. The maniac Tom Cruise is such yeah. a unique property in Hollywood. I've never seen you like that! And this film makes such good use of it. We never, seen, we, we never see the scene where he just... He goes through, a, like the, the Groundhog Day scene where he goes through 10 or 12 iterations of this where he just walks into the, like as soon as that guy kicks his booty, like stands up and shoots himself in the head. Like right. we never see him experiment with it. He always tries to, he always goes on the jump. He never feels trapped in it. Notably, the darkest part of the film is where he gets drunk before that one jump and then, and then runs his timeline out as far as he can go by himself. Like that's that is like the low point of his experience when he recognizes that that it's been a trap all along, but it does take quite a while to get to that point. Like the experimentation phase doesn't really occur up until then. You're right. And he never we never see him do a thing where he tries to end run the battle entirely, where right. he he goes through whatever whatever th- you know fifty times it would take to learn how to fly a helicopter. Yeah. And then steals a helicopter and just flies around the side. Although it's somewhat implied that he tried that and that he can't get through. Yeah. Time travel does such an interesting thing to death. Like it totally defangs it and makes it fun and funny sometimes. Like right. that that Groundhog Day DNA is definitely in this film in that way because the the various methods of death, either on the battlefield or 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 self administered, are often like 
punctuated humorous moments yeah right where he breaks his leg or his back and it's like all right or like times when emily blunt has to finish him off right and he's like no 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 no." what other what other genre but time travel could it ever feel this way the only thing he doesn't do is learn to play the piano yeah (laughs) well so that's one of the things i wanted to interrogate why is this an appealing scenario to us We've watched enough movies that do this that it that it obviously is scratching an itch for us, the viewer. And is it that you get a thousand lifetimes so you get to try all the things that you wanted to try? Is it that is it that we love a scenario where death isn't final? Um, what what are we just like zombie movies give us a, a an ability to kill as many people as we want with no moral consequence? Yeah. What does this do for us? Because it does. It's effective. I mean, I think there's something that this does that video games also do is that what if I could compare one version of doing this to another version of doing this? Right. And then reset. Yeah. What what if I could refine my approach to life and have there be an undo button? What if all my choices were perfect? Yeah. It's very tantalizing, the thought. I think this movie also has like the big challenge of uh, like Groundhog Day, like seeing the same day over and over again sounds boring. Uh, And uh, it has to kind of figure out how to how to present it in a way that's interesting and, and doesn't just feel like it's kind of warming the same scene over and over. I think one of the ways it does that is it is it trades boredom for impatience. Like there are times when Tom Cruise's character you could understand him being bored with his circumstances because he he will interact with people and be like, "Hurry up and get your shit over with!" Like I'm on I'm yeah. on my mission. Like go ahead and punch me. I'm tired of uh, I'm tired of explaining to you two bozos that yeah. Uh, yeah that I haven't been away from the barracks or whatever. And that's an interesting thought technology that that the film deploys. And it, like it made it makes you trade that as a viewer because the character is making that trade in those moments. It's such it's so gratifying to to watch somebody take on the attributes of God over or a God over time. Yeah. Right. To be able to walk into a barrack and say, I know all your life stories. I've met you all a thousand times. And so shut up. The first time he encounters those people in in J squad, he's bullied by them. He's intimidated by them, which is a feeling that we all have entering yep. a group that's already and you're, you're just like, not only do you enter the group but you show up in handcuffs and being described as a coward and a traitor. Right. Like it, it that, that uh, plays on our, on an anxiety we all presumably have. And then over time to graduate to someone who walks in and is, is already the most competent person and gets to replay that event, replay that humiliation. Yeah. What if you were the coolest kid on the first day of school? Right. How would that change everything that followed? (laughs) Particularly if you felt like the worst kid on the first day of school. Yeah. Like Terminator 2, a previous Porkchop movie, this this film spends a lot of time thinking about fate versus free will and making the case that it would be really cool to have free will. But I think that like... A lot of the reinforcement of returning to the same thing over and over again is that we don't really have free will, right? Like the like the the master sergeant has his spiel that he's gonna, you know, like all his little uh, pet phrases that 
he will he will inject into a conversation given the right stimulus. It like makes all the other people aside from Tom Cruise seem kind of like automatons. Right. Although they do adjust, you know, when Tom Cruise interjects or or uh, says what they're going to say before they say it. I mean, you do see some, you know, some kind of shock out of out of their faded cage. Yeah. Especially and I think most profoundly when uh when they end up in Brendan Gleeson's office and finally are able after what seems to be a thousand tries finally say by by this employing the same trick like I know what your secretary is about to say I know the whole backstory I mean then that's crazy to think that in one of those versions where he shows up he learns the secretary's son's middle name I mean how is he right. how is he actually accomplishing these within the space of 24 hours I mean this guy has a great memory like that's that that's is right. definitely something that this movie makes the case for I would have to write it down and then when I woke up the next day I wouldn't have my notebook and I'd be fucked we never see the scene where he like he does his entire day with the express reason of talking to the secretary yeah and in, at, and attempting to get this information out of her right and like the conversational dead end where she says like she wants to talk about something else and he just puts a gun to his own head <laughs> Blows his brains out. <laughs> like, imagine the secretary reacting to that forty times. Right. Like, what did I say? Right. I'm thinking about like, what if, what if these are all realities that continue to exist after this? Yeah. And, right. and he's just yeah. like leaving everybody hanging with him dead. There's a reality where the secretary lives with the idea of never knowing what triggered a crazy person to blow their brains out. In, he, and in he, had to, office. he had to do that 40 times just to get to yeah. that office where yeah. he got shot in the hall. He got shot in the parking lot. Yeah. He got shot right. on the bus. And every one of those is a reality where people are like, this guy, it's so weird what he did. I think this is, I mean, this is a film that is about the thousands of choices you could make as a filmmaker in what you're depicting and in what branches of the story tree you choose to follow. And tonally, how how critical it is to choose the right ones. Because if we see uh, brains on the secretary, this film feels totally different. It's, it is a video game and, and very definitely uh, only one set of conditions away from just being a video game movie where you, where you do have the cheat codes. Right. And, and in that, it's successful because it's... And I think the, the reason is that we are treated to the story of him falling in love with Emily Blunt and falling in love with her for reasons that are that are unclear because who is she other than somebody that's also had this power we never we don't learn her backstory and he doesn't really either but somehow her character shines through she's this uh she's this furiosa person who is all business all the time even after she she realizes that Tom Cruise has this you know has this has seen her presumably I mean every time he introduces himself and says I have this power you and I have been here before she has right. to imagine how many of these realities have did he you just spend the whole afternoon trying to get my blouse off like he's <laughs> he's done everything right just as she right. fell in love with some dude that and right. she ended up seeing die I thought that that scene was so interesting when she talked about her having seen her beloved die a hundred times like he's the only person in the universe that can relate to that right 
having seen her die a hundred times and seen other people die a hundred times, but they don't, they don't relate on that level. No, she, she, she keeps that as still, that's still her, her thing that he can never understand, even though he could have said exactly that, right? Like I've watched you die a hundred times. So anyway, it's kind of like when I talk to my daughter and I'm like, do you remember (laughs) when your friend didn't want to play with you at your birthday party? Now you're not playing with your friend at her birthday party. Do you see? And my daughter's like, no, not really. I go, oh, right. Different situation. (laughs) It's an interesting depiction of what contemporarily is known as like the work wife thing, like through proximity and repetition, like you just bond with someone. Right. But it ends up affecting his, like he gets all the way to that helicopter she refuses to accept that he can see the future at which point he could just break off he could just go on his own but she would die and he doesn't and he wants to protect her he wants her to survive if he's going to survive and that really i maybe the first time i saw this i didn't believe that that would have the power to affect his choices but if he's already died a thousand times He's trying to work this. He's trying to find the cheat codes that also allow him to save her. And that was, a, I thought, a pretty cool plot device. Yeah. I thought that that was great. And I thought that the taking, taking the power away right at the, at the eve of the, of the final battle was brilliant. Because it, you know, like the stakes are, are pretty low for most of the movie. Like, obviously, like the survival of the species is the is the like secondary stakes, but the primary stakes of is our character going to live or die are just off the table and suddenly they're back on. And it's like, Oh shit. Like if they don't nail it the first time, which is a constraint that they haven't had so far. Right. uh, (laughs) Everything is fucked, man. Nailing it the first time and also nailing it perfectly because if they, if they were to nail it, but also kill a blue guy, it would mean the enemy knowing of their plan and their plan falling apart. Neither one of us is getting out of here. What drove me crazy, I think, first watch and also a little bit this watch, I agree that that's a brilliant plo- that's a brilliant filmmaking ploy to say like, well, now you got to get it. But the subsequent action sequence was the most complicated in the movie and somehow they survive it with all their with all their superpowers, but that one where they're dr- they're driving the the ra- the sort of uh, hella the quadcopter hella thing? quad yeah. uh, across the flooded courtyard of the Louvre with what seemed like one thousand aliens chasing them like dogs behind a and all they have is this crazy crazy arf, 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 arf. <laughs> machine gun that's blowing them away but as soon as the thing stopped they would be swarmed by these things and we don't see that. That was a scene that, to me, made it clear that they had tried and failed in this last mission, and it did seem as though they were expecting them. Right. Hmm. But that that part is where the yeah. where, is where the time loop thing and their skill set as soldiers. We're sort of, I don't know, we're on that ride. Yeah. And the whole time, it's like they could die at any second, and this movie would be over. But we know they're not. But you do kind of expect that maybe they'll both die at the end. It could be one where they had a dramatic death scene. And in destroying the in destroying the mother creature, he what? Reset two days? He reset two days. 
Yeah. And that's never quite given its full stretch. It's a movie that sort of feels like it's it's a a play at a franchise and that the next movie is going to explain what the hell happened. Well, paradoxically, to end the mission to destroy the Omega, which would mean that his only possible outcome after destroying the Omega would be to go to a point in time before that mission existed, right? Oh, wow. I, I don't know if that's like a like an astrophysics paper or a film studies paper, <laughs> but I'm I'm uh, I'm interested in subscribing to your newsletter. It's what we wanted, in a way. Except for he doesn't get the Congressional Medal of Honor because nobody knows that he did that. Right. Yeah, right. General Brigham gets the accolades. He gets the W. Yeah, but but Tom Cruise gets the girl. He sure does. Can you imagine that conversation? I mean, we're we're left to walk out of the theater imagining that conversation. Here's the thing, though. (laughs) At that moment in time, she has also been a person with the ability to jump around, and now he gets an entire... Can she jump up, jump up, and jump down? Yeah. Uh He he now has an entire lifetime. What do you mean? (laughs) I know, that was so Ben Harrison. (laughs) Instead of a single day to make the point that he is also someone with that same experience. Right, because he's he's a major in this world. Yeah. And he shows up, and it's weird because she, when, when he gets out there on the training pad and she says, what, what do you want? We do see that she's above military discipline somewhat. Yeah. Right? She doesn't say, yes, sir. So her experience up until then has been consistent. And he's got, and that I think is probably the moment that he says, remember that guy that you fell in love with that you watched die a thousand times and how deeply it affected you? Well, guess what? You're that to me. And we just saved the world together. So, anyway. I I love how this movie ended. Like, smash cut to credits. Like, loved it. Loved it, loved it. Like, the the look on Tom Cruise's face. Right. Everything. Big fan. All it needed was a a song by Moby. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty hot. (laughs) Do you guys know what the, the sequel to this movie is called currently on IMDb? What? Live, die, repeat, and repeat. Hmm. I, I, think, I think that they, they can come up with a better name than that. That is really rough. <laughs> Actors don't usually say this about their projects, but Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt have said that the sequel is better than the first. Like but, they, but what could the sequel be? They, they are more excited for whatever it is than what this was, and they, they know how good Edge of Tomorrow was. They killed the UFOs. How do you get more UFOs I don't know. and then have the have the blue UFOs spill their blood on you again unless you do it on purpose, which seems pretty risky. Well, I wonder maybe they start dissecting them and uh oh, right. and the uh mechanic slash particle physicist's character starts uh, developing some time travel technologies. Once you kill an alpha, you want to put its alpha blood in your freezer and then consume it from time to time. Here's the thing about <laughs> killing an alpha. Do the You UFOs, can make a tea out of it, John. Do, yeah. Oolong tea. A betel nut. <laughs> as, a, uh, as a podcast of, of three betas, I think it's, uh, it's fitting that our, our uh, I beg speculation your pardon. killing alphas is uh, behind the paywall. <laughs> There are not three betas on this podcast. There's one mega oh. beta, one half-ass beta, beta, and one fucking big daddy. And <laughs> you know it, I know it. 
Don't lump me it, in. It with would your, definitely take five grenades to kill you, John. Yeah, I'm not in your little cuck tribe. <laughs> cuck tribe. Yeah, cuck tribe. <laughs> I said it. That was the that was the name of my freestyle rap group. Yeah, uh, that you were in with Jesse Thorne. A tribe called Cuck. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing is, the UFOs would have to know, wouldn't they, that the blood of the Alpha created if it spilled on an enemy would create a time disturbance wouldn't they wouldn't it have ever happened in the millions of other planets that they'd uh that they'd conquered and so therefore wouldn't they keep the alphas wouldn't they armor them a little bit better or keep them out of the fray well dr carter says like they're like this is a one in a zillion chance that humans react this way to this stuff although it happened twice right oh but i see what you're saying like no other life form in the universe would have resisted quite the way that the humans have because it's a it's a it's a universe of cucks and it's (laughs) only human beings that stand up for themselves I mean, it's it, it kind of makes the case that this is like a a xenomorph level threat. Like you, it's it's like a perfect villain. Like it only has one weakness, and it happens to be us. Yeah, I love that. There's only one weakness, <laughs> and it happens to be us. the The fundamental, or I guess the deepest problem in this is that it is never fully explained why Tom Cruise punching that Issei coffee can into his leg enables him to short circuit the baloney that the that the mother ufo is capable of generating the baloney story and it gives him perfect sight for some moment like how does yeah, that work and definitely some star trek level techno babble exactly. being brought to bear <laughs> exactly on the story i mean i dig it whatever like jump jump over it but but it it is a uh, it is a glaring. That poor Dr. Carter to be busted down from from real science to mech mechanic. Yeah. What did he do? What's his backstory? I know. Maybe, uh, maybe he sent out a couple of tweets that <laughs> were problematic. It, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a General Brigham problem, right? Uh, he seems to be a real issue f- strategically for the global military because uh, it sure seems like he would have the power to elevate or at least not subsume a person whose experience or intelligence are of the Dr. Carter type. Like, he has knowledge that could be useful. And yet, every time Rita has elevated her own knowledge to up to the level of the general, she is uh, put into a insane asylum and disemboweled or or the doctor is uh, is busted down to mechanic so is this movie is it creating a world kind of like the one we're currently living in uh, where the death of science is uh coincident with the rise of uh like super military culture where they cannot allow that the scientists would have a different take yeah i mean if those two examples aren't sufficient the uh, the scene where Rita and Tom Cruise are are trying to bust him into going into his safe over and over again is maybe the the moment that expresses that the best. Like they can't get him to open the safe, even though what is it to him if he does? 
There is no downside for the general taking out the thing he doesn't understand and giving it to Tom Cruise. Well, and also, why is it in a safe anyway? Yeah. It, if it didn't threaten him and his and his generalship, somehow he would have just thrown it in the garbage. It's the, it, the in this movie they treat it as the chip from Terminator One, mm-hmm. right? But they're not employing it in any way. They don't even really seem to believe that you can attack the or that you can defeat the enemy any way other than bombing it into submission. It made me think the first time I saw the film that the general was playing both sides and he couldn't be trusted. Like he was mm. promised something at the end by the invading force. Like You think he's on the side of the oofs? The first time I saw it, that's what I thought. Up oh. until that moment where he allowed for the giving of the technology to Tom Cruise. Right. But he was making so many decisions. Like he was so strident in his uh in his not listening to anyone with outside information that it that it seemed suspicious in that way yeah right like if the if if this happened now and there were some some uh pencil-necked scientists from the university of minnesota who were talking about how we needed to take the blood of the blues and let's just say that there's evidence for something that could uh, harm humanity forever Go and on. scientists have agreed that it's a thing yeah and yet people in a position of political power sure are unwilling to do anything about it i mean that would be suspicious right i'm following along so basically this movie is a liberal critique uh, but in the <laughs> but in the form of a total <laughs> blood and guts machine gun orgy that's a hell of a combination which yeah. is the our favorite kind of movie. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Machine Gun Orgy It shows is both great. sides. Lulling the right-wingers into a false sense of security that they're just going to be watching a movie about robo-soldiers. Yeah, robo-soldiers. Except when Mel Gibson did this, we hated him <laughs> for it. Blood Orgy. Well, he was doing it for the wrong reasons. Right, right, right. right. And also, like, way too many slow-mo blood explosions that this movie tastefully cuts away from. Why do we like oofs to be like octopuses now? That's a fairly recent development. Is it just that we finally have the technology to portray digital octopuses, like angry octopi, pot pusses? Mm. I, I really like the aliens in this. They're they're very scary and 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 like like I feel like you see them a lot, but also you know they change so quickly from frame to frame that they're a bit indistinct in a way that keeps them scary this film walks right up to that line geographically in these war scenes of not really knowing where you are in a place i don't think it crosses that line but i think the aliens are a big part of it they're so tentacly and they spin around so fast and so does the camera like spatially i i never lost an understanding of where we were but i feel like at a couple of times it came really close to transformersing itself into into just being lost in it, right? Well, it's it, it it really trends toward Japanese tentacle porn, right? This is a hentai lover's dream. No, it's not. The giant sword is is also a very like anime image. Yeah. But there's nothing penetrate like the these aliens do not kill through penetration. Are you sure about that though? Where in this film does that happen? Well, maybe it happens off screen. He, he gets one through the chest at one point. Yeah, maybe maybe one of them. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't like go up up his butt. Maybe one of them pleasures soldiers before it dismembers them. <laughs> it's one of those things that they're like unwilling participants in 
initially, but then it you know it's so sexy that it kind of they it kind of overcomes that. Yeah, it's the dream of the fisherman's wife. <laughs> Jesus, the many vaginas of the fisherman's wife by John Roderick. Jesus has nothing to do with this. I thought the war was great. The war scenes were, we, we watched them over and over again, and you never really saw the cracks. It's a, it's a scary beach landing. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's the worst Normandy ever. <laughs> World's worst Normandy. World's worst Normandy. <laughs> but then after they get off the beach and they're out, you know, they steal that car and they're out driving across the land, the threat never dissipates. And when they're at the barn and you realize there are mimics buried, like they go into some kind of sleep state where they bury themselves in the ground and they're just waiting to get woken up. Right. Um, we've seen that in horror movies too. The sort of don't make a sound. Yeah. Horror movies featuring Emily Blunt. Horror movies with oofs. Yeah. Another very modern part of this movie is that Nobody knows what they want or why they attacked. Nobody knows like, who they were. Like that's or, a very like uh, post post nine eleven like something that we could understand if we wanted to. Like why do they want to the erect hate us? Do they want to erect a mosque at Ground Zero? Is do you think that's what they're doing? <laughs> Jesus, Ben, weird take. Yeah, interesting. Huh. Okay, Ben, sure, whatever. Teach the controversy, I guess. That's a pretty fun thing to think about, though, like the weird human exceptionalism that would assume that like any sort of diplomatic path could be followed, any sort of summit where like we could figure out each other's intentions and come to some sort of common ground. What's your deal? Do you just want Germany? Were an alien attack to happen, we would never have that opportunity. We would always guess. Right. But it's it's like only the old the old cranks in the bar that are even speculating on it right like they're that's where all of that comes out it's like oh yeah they want our minerals and uh right our fishermen's wives they want our fishermen's wives god i really wanted tom cruise to lay into that old guy at the bar like old guys like why aren't you fighting tom cruise could have said the same thing to him what the fuck are you doing old man yeah he could have hit him with a helicopter blade sword yeah anybody can get in a robot suit hey that's right you need no training nope the source material for this film uh, depicts these robots as a thing that you only need the amount of effort used to walk across eggshells and not break them. Like, there's a huge, like, the world building of these mech suits is such that, like, like you're saying, the old man could have driven one. It does not take strength. It only takes practice. All you need is kill is the name of the novel upon All which it is based. Is kill. Right. I really loved the way that those suits were depicted in this movie as somewhat cumbersome because I feel like if they had tried to make them uh, require no effort, yeah, we would have been seeing some weird digital kind of th- that sort of digital weight yeah. that's really hard to accomplish. And what they did, it seems like, is they put these people in real foam suits yeah. and had them march around uncomfortably and that worked for me the the way that they they were even though the suit was doing all the work they were kind of lumbering depending on on how they were rigged these suits were between 80 and 130 pounds like the, the actual suits yeah 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 there's some footage of uh, of like the behind the scenes where they all have guy wires like they're they're essentially like hanging from 
cranes as when they were like running around and just kind of like swimming their feet against the ground. But if they had used digital instead and had made it look like you could tiptoe in these suits and run super fast, I think it the it would have looked a lot worse. The movie would have looked yeah. bad. There are some really impressive visuals in this film and and the suits are super fun to watch. Another film where Tom Cruise does all his own stunts. All of them. You know, being a movie star is hard work. We we tease him a lot because we've got him on the spot. But he puts he puts it in. He puts the effort in. Have you ever seen those those um, those clips where he's getting exploded across a room on guy wires and banging into a wall? I mean, directors who have worked with him have said, had he not been an actor and just been a stuntman, he would be one of the best stuntmen in the world. And that's just a facet of his ability as an actor. It's yeah. crazy. You know, all the people that work in recording studios say that Christina Aguilera shows up on time and works her ass off until the wee hours and never yells at anybody or asks for anything. So Wow, so what's your problem, John? Well, I want freaking <laughs> peanut M&Ms without the green ones in there, and I don't think it's that big of a deal. <laughs> Read my writer. I, I think the, the upshot here is that Xenu works. It's incredible to see what kind of career that tom cruise has made for himself it is astounding it really is that he's able to do this over and over and over again he doesn't get hurt even like i I guess he broke his ankle in the last mission impossible film but like that is such a rarity for someone who works as hard as he does physically yeah he's he's short that's part of the reason if you're if you have a low center of gravity you can jump around you look good in suits Big head, small body. He really picks a specific kind of movie, like a very like specific kind of action film is, is what he is interested in participating in. Although this one does feel a little bit outside. He, as he gets older, he's getting more and more comfortable. He's the anti-Harrison Ford. He's getting more and more comfortable being depicted as a flawed hero. I think he's great. I think he's one of the greats working today. Have you seen the last couple of Mission Impossible films? No, They're... no. In fact, I crossed the street to the other side to not go by the theater. That's that's a mistake <laughs> on your part. Is that right? I, I really believe that. Yeah. All right. The talk about suspension of disbelief. I mean, those movies have people that like squeeze through a keyhole. Like, oh, I'm the, I'll, I'll see you on the other side. Says the like, guy who doesn't watch them. You don't know what you're talking about. All right, all right. Watch and then decide. It's mostly him just like jumping out of a window or like falling down a cable that's dangling from the underside of a helicopter. When Jason Bourne does it, I believe it because he's sad. And Jason (laughs) Bourne's sadness communicates that he has to do these things. He has to jump out of a window and fall 50 stories because of sadness. You know, I'm glad you brought up Jason Bourne because uh, The Bourne Identity was another film that Doug Liman directed. And Doug Liman became famous as the director of Swingers which to a lot of people feel like was the film that jump-started, like along with Reservoir Dogs and all of those films, but like the independent film uprising that took over Hollywood, like Doug Doug Liman was a big part of it. And it's amazing to think of him starting his career like that and then directing a film like Go and then going from Go to The Bourne Identity and that film launching him as an action film director. Yeah, yeah. What a wild career. I'm making you all personally responsible for his deliverance. It made me sad to see Bill Paxton in this movie. Made me really miss him. Yeah. 
I, I have to say, this is my favorite Bill Paxton role. Yeah, I know. I know it's crazy to say, but I loved him in this movie. And sometimes I, I, I go half and half on Bill Paxton. I love the, uh, are you American? Nope. <laughs> no, I'm from Kentucky. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> he won me over. Even though throughout the movie, his accent really warbles. When he first shows up, I was in it. And then he, he did that same, he did that same scene like 15 times. And by the yeah. end, I felt like his accent was all over the place. It wasn't really a Kentucky accent to begin with, but There's but I a, just uh, I lo- I loved him with that mustache. I just I want to I wanted to see him in more more yeah. drill sergeant roles. Uh, I actually have a uh, moment of pedantry about his character here. Uh, the hat that Master Sergeant Farrell wears in the beginning of the film was discontinued by the U.S. military back in the early 1980s. Ooh. Oh, yeah, Internet pedant? Well, this is set in 2020. Who's to say that the U.S. military doesn't do, like, a throwback uniform the way a professional sports franchise might? Well, wait, they, the military is doing that right now. They're coming out with throwback uniforms. Are they really? Yeah. Um, they decided that that having the military walk around in those digital camouflage everywhere they went on airplanes and so forth just mm-hmm. wasn't commanding the same sort of respect. So what they did was they went all the way back to World War II and the new army greens are full on World War II, like khaki pants, Damn. green, like hip length jackets. They've got, they, everybody looks like MacArthur now. So yeah, I agreed, agreed with you, Ben, that, that, uh, that pet ant can take it. Yeah, that pet ant sucks. But plus, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence in this movie that soldiers are kind of home crafting their uniforms, particularly uh, bulldozer who goes into combat wearing only a jock strap. Yeah, surprising that uh, J Squad gives Tom Cruise's character a ton of shit for being out of uniform when he shows up when they're all just like, I mean, they, they just look like schoolyard bullies. They're just wearing whatever. And the one guy's got like a Magnum PI Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Well, they look, you know what they, and, and, and surprising or maybe not surprising that Bill Paxton's in this movie because what they look like is the, the Marines from Aliens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The same and almost the same character. They got the same tough, uh, Chicana. Yeah. But zero character development that a James Cameron film would give him. Like it was severely lacking in that area. I thought. Yeah. That, that is one, like. They are the people that he thinks to rope into the the last stand battle, like, and it is a, like, it's a suicide mission. They don't ever make the case that this is a group of soldiers that are suicide mission ready. I wish we'd gotten to know them better. Yeah, but they're trading one suicide mission for another. If if the way that Tom Cruise makes the case is that by going to the beach tomorrow you're going to die, there may in fact be a better way that you could live through but probably won't. Yeah. I think the choice the choice is pretty clear that they're going to go to the Louvre. That's a good point. And I mean the Louvre is amazing. I think the the crazy thing about this is that he is a Tom Cruise is a marketing guy. Right, so so right. that's he's, the, he's super able to make the case. Yeah, super good at telling a story to a. How would you like to do a mission with your friends and family? That's right. Listen, <laughs> has it ever occurred to you that you're going to die today? Let me let me put you into a scenario where you'll almost certainly die. Yeah, but it will be really confusing to people later because why? Because oh no, it won't because time reset. 
he's got full metal bitch hanging out just outside the door that he can call in at, like right at the moment and yeah. you know that's the prestige Good timing. On, yeah that was nice. he's a showman that was nice that was hair hair on the back of your neck right <laughs> full metal bitch that's a pretty good call sign. Yeah, for you, Ben. <laughs> I just uh, I just found her yoga skills to be aspirational, let alone her combat skills. She did that Catherine Zeta Jones getting under the laser beam in the heist movie uh, yoga thing, except it didn't focus so much on her butt. Yeah. This is a film that's almost entirely absent any sort of romance, but there is a part at the end where Rita kisses Cage before going off to die. But it's like a death kiss. That's what I wanted to interrogate with you. I think it's pretty clear that it's Rita that kisses Cage and not the other way around. And I think that's interesting because Rita has only experienced this one day with him, this one day to fall in love or to feel as though they've been through a thing that would warrant a, a kiss before death. I think the context for that moment is would be far different if it was Cage kissing Rita. But as it is, what do you think of it? And what do you think of that choice? Do you think it diminishes Rita in any way by by that happening? This is this is true in the Groundhog Day universe, right? Like why would Andy McDowell ever in the course of one 24-hour period <laughs> fall so in love with Bill Murray, a person that she finds despicable at the beginning of that day? It's not seduction, but the idea that anyone could be seduced by the perfect day as made possible by someone else is an interesting idea, and I think there is something to it. If you have been made to experience a thing perfectly in every way for a 24-hour period and you know someone else was responsible for it, there would have to be a part of yourself that would want to kiss that person for making it possible, right? Maybe the new one is the prequel. Maybe it's her experience of, of oh. uh, living, dying, and repeating. I guess it wouldn't have yeah, Tom but, Cruise in it, though. Yeah, where's Tom Cruise in that? He's just sitting in an office somewhere making TV commercials. I would watch yeah, that, that movie. That would be great, actually. Just get him out of the movie and, and focus on her. The, pro- the problem with the creating the perfect day thing is how many times do you have to try it where you go a little too far, where she's like, wait a minute... Yeah. This whole day has just been one long setup. You have to be cool too, because you can't you can't win somebody's heart by I being mean, completely obsequious. Crucially, that's what happens in Groundhog Day when Andy turns on him. Like once once Andy McDowell realizes that she's been gamed. Right. She's like, "Get me out of here." Yeah. So he has to come back at it. The thing is, he has to come back at it from finally a genuine place, and I guess that's what's happening here too. She kisses Tom Cruise because at that point he is. Just pure confidence. I think it should be noted that this was not a scripted moment and that, and that Emily Blunt just tried it. Say what? She tried it. She was in the scene and she kissed him and Doug Lyman was like, what was that? And she's like, it just felt like something that, that, she, that would she would do. Wow. And so they kept it. Huh. It's so interesting that it was motivated by an actor's decision relating to her character. I wonder, yeah. though, I wonder how long she had that planned where she was like, you yeah. know what? I'm going to take this movie somewhere because <laughs> I'm Emily Blunt. I will be Mary Poppins one day. No one can stop me. When does Emily Blunt win an Oscar? It's not going to be long, I don't think. She's no. great. She's, She's great covering all the bases. Yeah. 
Maybe for uh, Jungle Cruise, mm-hmm. the uh, 2020 film adaptation of a racist ride at Disneyland. Oh, really? God, you would have a problem with Jungle Cruise, the ride. <laughs> Jungle Cruise is fun and funny. That is my position on have it. You ever, have you ever not been scared by that hippopotamus? I'm scared by Great that Great every time. Yeah. Uh, I was super mad at Emily Blunt about her character in Sicario. Yeah. Right? Really mad at her. Not, it's not her fault, but why didn't she make some actorly decisions in that movie to stop being stop playing such a dumb character? I'm glad you did, let it did go. Did she win you back with her role in Sherlock Gnomes? No. But she won <laughs> me back here. Won me back all the way. All right. Good to hear. I'm glad you don't hold those kind of grudges. I mean, if I'd ever gone on a date with her and she'd been like, this isn't for me, I'd still be <laughs> mad at her. <laughs> yeah. After having planned the perfect day, yeah. John like, John's advances get What are you rejected. talking about? I took you out to the locks. We went <laughs> we went down to Pike Place Market. You caught a fish. Yeah, come on. <laughs> like I definitely I had a couple of people give me high fives yeah. as we were walking through. Doesn't that impress you? You let her wear the sash. Yeah, I let her wear the sash for a minute. <laughs> That's and then fun. I was like And hey, then you, you took gotta, it back. You gotta give that back, yeah. actually. <laughs> That's enough. Yeah. Uh, it's probably enough time to have talked about Edge of Tomorrow, right? Is it review time? Yeah, we can Wait a minute, a Emily Blunt is married to John Krasinski? Yeah. I take a lot of what I just said back. Her decision making is back on the chopping board. <laughs> John Krasinski? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, definitely on the chopping board. I mean, you know, he's fine, but... <laughs> God damn it. John just has a sandwich bag of of putty. Yeah. Sandwich bag of putty. In the studio. That's a good call. For some too. reason. <laughs> Does he have a can of WD-40 that he could use to fix up whatever chair is making that noise? Nope. God, what a disaster. <laughs> this fucking Rob show. hates us, and for good reason. <laughs> Uh, I don't hate this movie. I love it a lot, and I'll tell you why on a scale of one to five grenade pins. Mm, there is there is a grenade pin, isn't there? The end of the film. If it is to be, it is up to Tom to destroy the Omega at the end, and he does it in a very showy way. He makes the Alpha believe that he has failed in his mission, but then, while underwater, turns himself around to face the alpha and does uh, jazz fingers oh he does showing the the pulled grenade pins and does like what is the foundational action move scene it's not looking at the explosion happening happening behind you tom cruise gets that moment here he does not look at the result of his work he instead looks at the alpha waving his fingers each one with a grenade pin on it it's a great moment in what I think is a really great and fun film. I love time travel movies and I'm grateful that they're still making movies that aren't franchises or superhero films. This is a film that was what made in 2015, like not made long ago was original and good and made a lot of money. And it makes me hope that there are more films like this in the pipeline Uh, More films like this featuring Tom Cruise, hopefully, because I think he's one of the reasons this film is great. Thematically, I really, like, outside of how much fun it is to watch someone die over and over again in a comedic way, 
There is also like a deep reservoir of the type of trauma that a person feels when they get close to someone and that person dies. And this is something you see a lot in war films when the people who die are all different people. But to see it portrayed as one person getting close to one other person and that one person dying over and over again is a really weird and interesting thought experiment for what that kind of trauma does to a person. And you see it uh, in Emily Blunt's character and in her story of the one person she got close to, and you see it in Tom Cruise's character again, the closer he gets to Emily Blunt and how often he is unable to succeed in his mission without saving her life. That that combination of fun and tragedy is intoxicating and great. And by the time this film wraps and snaps to credits, it is super fast for its two hours and super entertaining and enjoyable. And I've got to give it all five grenade pins. I don't think there's anything I would change about it. It's it's just relentless. It's as relentless as Tom Cruise is. <laughs> is what I'll say. I loved it. Good pick, Ben. I'm glad you put it on the pork chop list. Oh, I thought uh, I thought we decided on that together. We were talking about it, and we we said uh, that should be our next pork chopper. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like this was part of the great culling that I did of our war movie list, where I was like, nope, nope, yeah, nope. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> Split them off. And yeah. uh, sometimes I get it right, sometimes I don't. In case no one else does, I think one thing that's worth noting is that it's a modern war film that's also not rated R. What? Yeah. It's, it's not rated it's R? It's PG-13. Whoa. And uh, it's not gory. It's scenes of violence are just fast and shocking the way a thriller might be. But uh, it doesn't revel in its blood the way a lot of war films that we've watched have been. So... I think that's, I think that's worth saying. Maybe show your thirteen-year-old this film hmm. if you have one. <laughs> See how they like it. Yeah, and then guide them parentally. Right. Um, I, I really like this movie as well. I am glad that it seems to have been successful enough to get a sequel, and uh, and yeah, I agree that it is refreshing to have a movie that doesn't feel like just another big franchise it doesn't say a whole lot about war as a film but uh it i I think effectively sets itself in a kind of military and war context to to tell a really interesting story and uh i'll give it four grenade pins one of those pins didn't get uh pulled from the fifth grenade but uh I'm, i'm guessing that grenade's gonna go off when the when the rest of the bandolier goes you know the fifth grenade it's a good call sign. <laughs> the thumb. I feel like the grenade pin waving it in front of the alpha, even though we haven't really established that those creatures can see. Yeah. Nor is there any reason for it to know what a grenade pin is. <laughs> um, it does seem that, angry when it sees them. Yeah, that's true. It goes, ah, damn it. Which is its one emotion. A lot of aliens comparisons, but, but one of them happens in this scene where... In Aliens, the recognition of a greater intelligence when you meet the Queen is also a scene that you get in Edge of Tomorrow where the uh, the Beta has a moment to attack and chooses not to and withdraws because to do so would mean uh, restarting 
the timeline again. Like they want to they want to keep him alive. Right. In that scene in the in the dam. The aliens know the mechanics as well. Right. Well, this movie was refreshingly free of uh, a lot of things that plague war movies. A lot of the there were some cliches employed ones uh, employed intentionally, I think, to establish that we were in a war movie. Uh, but there's a lot of this that isn't really cliched at all. I don't like time travel movies because time travel movies drive me crazy. I'm one of those people that cannot accept the um the hand waving star trek sort of like oh we use the dilithium crystals and yet <laughs> you're constantly attempting to construct the perfect day i am i am well and i'm super susceptible to the groundhog day effect like i love i'm i'm taken in by the what if you had to do it over and over scenario i just don't like it when they get to the end i mean great thing about time or the great thing about groundhog day is that it's just magic there's never an explanation offered whereas you know in this there's some kind of there's all this all this hoo-ha about the the oofs and their blood does this film make you think about uh the tipping point of the amount of information it would take for you to believe that time travel existed and and the person in front of you was a convincing time traveler the thing is i think a a convincing time traveler is one that shows up and goes, I know all this stuff about you. I don't know how it is that I time traveled any time traveler. Who's like, I built a machine that takes me through a wormhole. I would be like, fuck <laughs> you. Why do you have to wear a leather mask to go back in time? But if they were just like, I accidentally, oops, time traveled back here. The thing I feel about time travel is if you say to somebody, do you want to go, if, if time travel was possible, would you go forward or backward? I think what's seen to be the smarter choice by, by people who have considered this is to go forward. But in fact, I feel like anyone who goes any direction other than backward is a, is a tool, is a drag. Really? Because I was always thinking I'd just go up. Up to like the top of time? Yep. Hang cool. out up there. See how it's up there. See what it's like straddling time mm -hmm. my feeling is that if you are somebody who goes to the future um what you do is appear there and you are briefly a novelty right it would be like if a caveman came here we would go <laughs> whoa cool and after yeah. two days you would become just the province of some scientists that were poking you with sticks right, right? Yeah, nobody he, cares he doesn't speak moraine and he doesn't have a a, a cerebral <laughs> lattice work to interface with our machines so right and they and what what do you bring except like oh well uh we we're, uh, we uh, you confirm basically that you that what we already knew which is you only know how to use stone tools you would bring nothing to the people of the future whereas if you go back you bring all this stuff the knowledge that the hunt brothers will try and corner the silver market in 1980 but if you go even further oh, yeah, back. Yeah, that's the top of my list. If you go even further back, you're a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. So going back is the only reasonable direction, which is what Tom Cruise does in this movie. I mean, uh, I hate to do it, but uh, to paraphrase Woody Allen, I would never go back to a time before antibiotics. Right. I thought he was going to say I would never go back to a, to a time that would have me, which would be a, 
super hilarious. Anyway, I really liked this movie. It was a, it was fun. I thought it was smart. It was acted really well. It definitely was a war movie. There were only a few flaws that I'm not going to quibble about. And, uh, I think it's definitely like, I don't want to like overuse the real top ratings, but I also don't want to wallow in this. Like we are always giving everything four stars Mm. business either. I I think I'm an easy a on the pork chop movies. You are. Yeah. I feel like it's a four grenade pin sci-fi movie with one grenade pin that doesn't get pulled, but the grenade is still on the bandolier. Mm. the phantom pin yeah the pin that doesn't get pulled but kind of doesn't need to get pulled wow the overkill grenade yeah that's right all right strong scores all around yeah fun movie but do you have a fun guy ben who's your guy well you know there's a lot of a lot of people in this movie and you try and you try when when you're picking your guy to look around a movie and, <laughs> and pick out the one that kind of typifies yourself, your your avatar in the film. I and just want to say your turn to camera there was was really nice. Great you, amount of panache. <laughs> <laughs> I I I had I struggled despite the uh, the wealth of potential guys to to choose from until I realized that my guy was was right under my nose. There's. There's one character in this film that is killed and also blows it for his side in the same moment. And I think that that's what I would do, you know, like in dying, betray my entire species. And that's the alpha. That's my guy. Wow. Holy shit. I never thought that that one of the aliens could be a guy. Here we are. There it is. Ben's guy is the alpha, and I kind of appreciate that. Is it the alpha that gets cucked by all those grenade pins? <laughs> is it a specific alpha or just the generic alpha, the every alpha? I don't know, because they say that there's one alpha for every six million drones. So That's got to feel like being an only child, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's probably the same alpha. Yeah. Yeah, what are the chances? We know what the odds are. Yeah, one in six million. <laughs> Got to be the same one. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a guy. The elf oof. Adam, did you have a guy? My guy is Takeda, and he gets, I want to believe in a director's cut of this film, he gets more of a story, but the part of his character that stands out to me is during that Louvre mission, when shit is going down and they need to land that quad chapter and shit is going off, like, like they're shooting at the air at him. He is the guy standing astride the door, screaming and shooting his machine gun, like laying down (laughs) suppressing fire before they land. And it was such like an emotional release for anyone in this, in this company to experience. Like at this point, I feel like he knows it's a suicide mission. We see in war films sometimes the guy who just loses it and expending all of his ordnance out the door of this helicopter is that moment and it made me uh it exhilarated me to see because he was not taking into consideration his own life or safety he was just screaming and shooting his machine gun out the door of a helicopter and if you're a soldier what could be better (laughs) 
Takeda's my guy. I wonder if he watched the movie Taps uh, to prepare for that role because Tom Cruise in his first, in the movie that made him a star, uh, basically did that, you know, sat in the top of that prep school with his M60 machine gun, just frothing at the mouth. It's beautiful, man. It's He's beautiful. hardly in this movie. Do you remember him in this part? Uh, yeah, I remember okay. him in this part, but not kind yeah. of anywhere else. He's sort of anonymous in every other scene. But yeah, that felt good. It felt good to see him do this. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of catharsis in this movie. Yeah. My guy is Bill Paxton. Yeah. I mean, over the course of of Bill Paxton's career... I was not always on board with him, and I know he's a beloved actor. I know everybody just thinks he's the greatest, and there are a lot of things where I'm just like, uh, kind of something about the quality of his voice and the fact that he that he he's a winger in a lot of movies. I mean, I really liked the first few episodes or the first few seasons of Big Love, mm-hmm. uh, but even in that movie, I just I wanted somebody with a little bit more mm, spine or something. But boy, I liked him in this. He stood up straight. Did you stop watching Big Love when you realized it wasn't an instructional video? <laughs> well, I got what I needed out of it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like after they after things started to go like a little haywire. Where Wait, there's a downside to this. Yeah, where it wasn't just like three wives, yeah. but it was like three. Uh, or no, you know what it was? It was when he tried to get that fourth wife in, yeah. Yeah. that Euro wife. And it didn't pan out. I was like, I'm out. I heard the working title of that show was Mo Wives, Mo Problems. That's not been my experience. But anyway, <laughs> Bill Paxton, uh, it, he was almost unrecognizable at first in the way he inhabited that. Just the stereotype of the of the drill sergeant who's smart, but not because the first time we see him, he seems kind of smart. And then each each successive time we realize he's just a bundle of cliches, and that was enjoyable. So, Bill Paxton's my guy. Good guy. Good movie. Well, uh, thanks again to everybody that supports us on a monthly basis. We really, really appreciate it. Um, that was this month's pork chop episode, and we'll leave it with Robs from here. So for John Roderick. In Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire's Pork Chop Feed is a maximum fun podcast. It's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on social media. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I am at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks so much for supporting Friendly Fire. Tell a friend. We'll see you next month with another Pork Chop film. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.